0: I had a framed uh, picture of a puzzle I showed first hour. It actually had some scenes from Patmos on it. And um, it was, I framed it. I asked, asked the people, well, why do you frame it? You know why you frame a puzzle, right? So you can show it to other people and say, ooh, look at that neat puzzle. No, that's not the reason you frame a puzzle. You frame a puzzle so you never have to put it together again. Okay? <laughs> now it becomes art. It's no longer a puzzle. It's now art, and you don't have to assemble it any longer. Perfect. All right. Well, what, what, sometimes what's going on in life seems to be puzzling. It's hard to put all together. It's hard to make sense out of it. That's, I, I don't know how this fits together with what I know to be true. Having the bigger picture. Okay. Okay. This was just a random piece. And it didn't seem to go with the other pieces that I have over here. But now I see where it fits in the overall picture of what has been happening through the ages and what it is that God is doing. That is the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation. It's like a picture at the end that shows us what God's end is going to look like. Helping us make sense out of some of the Random and real stuff that goes on in life that are hard to make sense out of otherwise. This last quarter, in the spring quarter of BP Academy, we did a course called Spiritual Life. And one of the th- things we did in the first session of that course is I showed a picture. It was actually mentioned in the book, and so I went looking for that particular painting because it, was, it, it made a very intriguing point. And the painting is called The First Morning. Mourning as in grief, not mourning as in the beginning of day. So the first mourning. Now, the people in the picture, you should be able to recognize them, not because you know what they look like, but because the very first mourning, the very first grief, at the very first death has to be the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And so there you see Abel. You see his body in the arms of his parent. You see a mother's grief in this horror of death that has come upon them for the very first time that they can't even make sense out of. And, and I, I, as you look in the picture, you see there's this, there's this bleak, desolate landscape. They are no longer in the garden, are they? You see, perhaps in Adam, you see something of his own responsibility. My sin has brought this My sin brought death upon us, even our own family. Others descended from us. The future doesn't look very good. There are storm clouds above them. Life is going to be hard and difficult. They are without shelter and unprepared for it. But the most important part of the picture is perhaps the least noticeable. If you look off in the horizon... There's a a thin band at the horizon. There is a faint hint of life far away of a better day coming. Even in such bleakness and brokenness, there is the hint of glory coming. And that that painting inspired uh, what we wanted to communicate in the artwork that's on the front of your bulletin for this series. That you have the, the destruction, the desolation, the brokenness of this world. And you can imagine maybe current events that a scene like that might come out of. Is there any hope? The family appear to be refugees. They have very few belongings, but they're clinging to what they do have, as we so often do. And yet, they're going somewhere, but don't really even know where. The storm clouds of of continuing trouble roll overhead. And yet, off in the distance, in the horizon, there's a day coming. There is a day coming. That, in a nutshell, is the book of the Revelation. That in the midst of this brokenness, there is a day coming. The day of the Lord. The day of his return, the day of his judgment upon all that is wrong upon planet earth, the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, the day when your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a day coming. That is the message of the book of the Revelation. That the Lord gives to John to give to his church to give then to us as well. It may be fitting for the book of Revelation, the quote by Winston Churchill, as he described the intentions or trying to understand the intentions of Russia in 1939, there in the early years of World War II. Churchill said, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. And here's the part you may have heard before. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma, that which is impossible to understand. But perhaps there is a key to this riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Perhaps there is a key, and that key is Russian national interest. The Russians will do what is in their national interest. Now the same could could be said of the book of the Revelation not Russian's national interest. I'm not trying to read current events into the book, in fact we're going to try to not do that, but it is is apocalyptic visions wrapped in a narrative inside an epistle. There are three different genres or kinds of literature that we find in the book. There's these crazy weird hard to understand apocalyptic visions There's a narrative that carries us from one vision to another. There's a story, John does this, and then he sees that, and then he heard this, and that moves the the whole package along. But all of that was contained within an epistle that uh, that, uh, John is writing to seven churches. And so the book starts in the form of a letter, much like some of Paul's letters or John's three letters. We see that in the opening chapter. There's a summary statement here in in, in verses 1 to 3 I want to read. We're going to read several different small sections at a time and then talk a little bit about it. And what I want to do this morning, I want to give you two keys to the book as a whole, what we're going to see in this book and what we should take notice of right up front as well. In chapter 1 in verse 1 then of the book of the Revelation, the revelation, the revealing... is near, Father, there are things here hard to understand, and yet these are things you want us to, to understand. You want us to perceive them. You want us to know them. You want us to be blessed by them. So, Father, would you open our eyes that we may perceive wonderful things from your word. Lord, would you help us to see what is here, especially the key parts that we should take away this morning. Things that we should be assured of and comforted by in the midst of an uncertain world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the revelation. It's not the book of the revelations. There is one revealing that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I I think you can almost take that both ways. This is, it is a revelation that God gave to Jesus, that Jesus gives to John, to his church But it's also a revelation that concerns Jesus. It is the revelation about Jesus. It is showing him as he truly is, and we're going to see that in the very first chapter. It is the unveiling, the apocalypse. You've heard that word before, right? An apocalypse. You think apocalypse means the end times. No, apocalypse means unveiled. It means revealed, brought forth and shown out in the open. The unveiling or revealing from God to Jesus to an angel who shows it to John for the churches. Now, that unveiling, that word apocalypse, it gives us our term apocalyptic literature. And Revelation is definitely apocalyptic literature. And what that means is hard to understand. It means too confusing, might as well close it and read something else. That's kind of what it means, right? What is this apocalyptic stuff? Well, apocalyptic literature serves a particular purpose, which I'll describe in a few minutes, but this is how you recognize it. Normally, it is heavenly secrets which are revealed by spiritual beings, typically angels, to a seer or a prophet, somebody who sees the visions like Daniel in the Old Testament, like John here in the book of the Revelation. Now, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to show a transcendent, overarching, greater reality that supersedes, that takes precedence over any current contemporary crises that might be going on this is the big picture this is what it's all about this is the overarching reality this is what is true that that overrules everything that claims to be the answer this is the most important it's characterized by visions and by cyclical patterns daniel you had the the image that showed world empires then you had a series of Wild and wacky beasts that showed those same world empires um, from, a, from a somewhat different perspective. And in, 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 the, in, the, in the Revelation, you have a series of, of trumpets, and, or rather the, there are seals on the scroll, and then there are trumpets, and then there are bowls of judgment. And you have all of these that lead to a main cataclysmic event. As in Daniel's apocalyptic visions, so also in the Revelation. Everything is moving toward a particular culmination. What it's all pressing towards. The future is going somewhere. The world is not in random chaos with no end in sight. In fact, sometimes it seems that there's no end intended. It's just going to go wherever it wanders. But that is not the reality of history. History is his story, and God will bring it to his completion. And in this book, not only does he show us what the end looks like, but he's going to show us, he's going to to say, pause a minute, and take a look up at the canvas, at the big picture of what has been going on from creation until culmination. So he's going to remind us of the big picture of what God is doing. In the book, he will use then cryptic, hard-to-understand symbols, These are symbols out of the Old Testament often that have their own baggage that they bring with them. They're intended to bring the baggage with them. It's been said you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you don't have a a, a good handle on the book of Daniel and a working familiarity with Ezekiel and Zechariah and probably Isaiah as well. If you don't have some familiarity with those prophecies, you will miss where the symbols come from. And the symbols are supposed to bring with them all of that freight, all of that background and baggage that come from those Old Testament occurrences of the same thing. That's all being brought forward. And so you have an economy of words. As a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, it's 22 chapters long, but it would be much longer without all that apocalyptic imagery which brings all of the Old Testament prophecies with it picture is worth a thousand words, and so John uses those previous images known to his readers to convey that bigger picture, as well as the emotion and the impact that comes along with it. Now, these are the things that must be. This is the revelation... Of Jesus, which God gave to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. Now, this was roughly 1900 years ago. If John is writing at the end of the first century, around AD 95, this is 1900 plus years ago. That doesn't seem like things which must soon take place. That's an awkward translation, but it's a translation of an awkward phrase. What it, what, another way to translate or to, br- to bring out of that phrase, there are two aspects. One is things which must be. These are the things that must be. Things on earth will reach God's intended purpose. They must be. It has to happen. There is no alternative. God is sovereign. He is in charge. History is not meandering on its way wherever it chooses to go. God is, con- God is ultimately in control. And it must, be, it must be soon or better suddenly. These things will happen quickly. The, Jesus described it that way, that when you least expect it, there will be marrying and giving marrying. Suddenly the end has come up. Suddenly the, the sands of the hourglass have run out and time is up. It says the time is near. Now what does that mean? Have you ever told your kids, we're almost home? What does that mean, really? Absolutely nothing. Its meaning is relevant to how desperately your child is crossing their legs, right? What does it mean we're almost there? We're getting close. Close could be two hours, and two hours could be way too long, depending on what the urgency is. The time is near. The time it will, will suddenly come upon us. It, it simply means that it is approaching. It is getting closer. And if it was, getting, if it was approaching then, how much more now? John, the author, he's the, he's the witness to the Word of God. This is the same John of the Gospel and the letters. You find some of the same terms, same patterns of seven, the same reference to the Word, the Logos, the Lamb of God, the water of life overcoming, which he echoes in his letters, and he echoes again in the letters to the churches here. So a lot of similarities in those writings to this one. Now, if John writes this in AD 95, when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, during the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian, during a sharp persecution, I'll talk a little more about that, but let's assume that, rather than spend lots of time arguing the issues of the dates, that puts John at about in his mid-80s. One thing I want to pause right here, and I don't know how many of you are in your mid-80s. Some of you are. Some of you can see it from here. Some of you, that seems a long ways away. But even if you're in your mid-80s, it's in his mid-80s that, that, that God gives, through Jesus, to John this revelation, this picture on the top of the puzzle box that is going to be the ultimate hope of the church for the next 1900 years, in his mid-80s. John has been,, well, where have you been with this for so long? But at this time, in the midst of the crisis, this is what the church needed then and still needs, the hope of his coming and the reality of it. And he gives it to John to give to the churches in his mid-80s. Folks, my, my point is simply this. I don't care how old you are. It is not too late. It is not too late for you to be used by God to give your hope, to pass on your hope to others around you. There are others around you in the generations in your own family. There are others around you wherever you live that need the hope and the assurance that you have in Jesus. God has given it to Jesus who gave it to you to give to somebody and do so. John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Now we have ideas about Patmos as being a, a, um, a kind of a, a deserted island that's kind of like the Alcatraz of his day. There's only hardly anybody there but a few prisoners that the Romans just drop off to fend for themselves. Well, let's take a look at the island of Patmos. There's, a, there's an aerial photo of it. You can see the largest city, Scala, is in the middle there. It's a lot of uh, coves and fingers and so forth on the island. And that means there's a lot of beaches, a lot of coves, a lot of beaches. It's, if you had to be exiled somewhere, not a bad place to be exiled. But it wasn't a deserted penal colony. There were at least three temples from the first century era that were on the island. There was a fairly, l- n- not a huge population, but a decent-sized population. There were vineyards and so forth that were, that were there on the island. There was a Roman upper city or Acropolis, which was, the, was a city on a high point that had walls and was surrounded. And I was actually able to hike up to that. And you can actually see first century ruins. There were some of the blocks that made the wall of the upper city. So if you're merely a penal colony, you don't have an upper city, which is your last line of defense against anybody that would come and raid or attack. If you look straight through there to another post beyond, oh, look, there's John. Imagine that. Old guy. All right. Looks about mid-80s there, doesn't he? <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to some other, other scenes of Patmos. Like I said, beautiful. Light. Wouldn't that be a nice place to be Exiled. It doesn't seem so bad, and, and so John is not stuck by himself. John is around other people, but he's been isolated from Ephesus, the city where he ministered, and we'll talk about why. Oh, look, there's John again, <laughs> pondering one of the visions. Okay, now, 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 now here, John is from. Ephesus, Now, Ephesus' significant city has had Paul minister there for several years, Timothy after him, and also John for some time. But during the reign of the emperor Domitian, Ephesus is given the honor of having a temple dedicated to the god, the emperor Domitian. This is the first time that Ephesus has this honor to be a temple city for the emperor. It's an important honor if they don't treat it right, if they don't give the right honors to the temple of the emperor, that that status would be pulled back from them. It would be revoked. And so they guard this privileged status that they've been given with Rome. And this this temple that was built, okay. This you see Julie there, and you see those the pillars, and then there's statues of various gods and goddesses above those pillars. Okay, keep that in mind. Now let me locate it within the greater temple. You see the columns. You see the statues in the middle layer. And all of these statues of these various gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world, they form a platform which is 50 meters by 100 meters, which upholds the temple of the emperor Domitian. So that he, as his coins and correspondence said, is the king of kings and the god of gods. The other gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, they serve to support their ultimate ruler, Domitian himself. That's what's being communicated here. And everybody's expected to show honor to the god, the emperor. Everybody's expected to participate in the offerings. You can have your other gods too, who also honor Domitian, as long as you will go along with it. Well, John apparently did not go along. This was a moment in Ephesus, not unlike in Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar decides He's not just the head of an image that's going to include other emperors. He's going to be the whole image of gold. And everybody is going to bow down and worship the image when the music plays. And yet Daniel's three friends say, no, we're not. And they wind up in the fiery furnace as a result, Daniel chapter 3. Well, this is that kind of moment for John and other Christians in Ephesus. And yet the rulers of Ephesus, though John hears a different song. John hears instead the song of heaven, the song of the Lamb who is worthy. John will not bow to Domitian. John has probably been critical in his teaching and his preaching of following those who are not gods at all. Domitian and the other relics upon which he stands. And so they send him away. We cannot have teaching like that continuing in Ephesus, which is the guardian of the emperor's temple. And so he is exiled. He's exiled probably in A.D. 94, and uh, he's only able to return to Ephesus in A.D. 96 because the emperor Domitian has died, and his godhood has been canceled by the Roman Senate. I didn't know the Roman Senate could appoint who is God and who is not, but apparently they could, and they, they um, canceled his memory. No, that's not a current thing. That's an old thing. They they chiseled out the inscriptions that were made of him around the empire. They took his temple and they gave it to somebody else. They rededicated it. It's a bad thing for Domitian, but there's this general amnesty of all of his prisoners because he was actually a very bad guy, and once he's dead, we can all say it, after he was assassinated. And uh, so, so, so John, during that time, is exiled. And we even, we even know the cave, where John was, the cave of the apocalypse when he wrote the Revelation. Okay, there it is. In fact, if you look closely, you see a little handhold there? A little handhold in silver just to the left of that, of, that, um, of that banner hanging down? We're told that fenced-in area, that's where John laid his head each night. And that silver niche in the stone is where he, they, they covered it with silver because that's where John would put his hand every morning when he would pull himself up. You know, he's, he's in his mid-80s. It's not easy to get up in the morning when you've been laying on the rocks. Now, truth be told, we don't know if John used this cave at all. He may have had a nice house down in the city. We don't know. But there's a there's a Greek Orthodox monastery that's built over this cave, and so that is remembered as the Cave of the Apocalypse. In fact, the the um, the uh, there's a threefold crack, which is supposed to be a revelation of the Trinity. There was an earthquake, and the rock cracked into three, which reminded John of the Trinity in the midst of the. And sometimes traditions can get kind of wacky from there. We're going to try not. That that kind of stuff has long been the bane of the book of Revelation. All kinds of wacky theories emerge about current events in relation to it. We're going to try to avoid all of that. But there is a blessing. Blessed are those who read this book. And blessed are those who hear it and keep it. Who, Who live in the implications. This is not just something to know. There are implications out of what we know. Blessed are those who hear it and who keep it. Now, it's not a magic book. If you read this book, you automatically get a blessing. Ding! It's like it adds to your account, and there it is. Ding! Okay, kind of like an app, right? When you pass that level, you get another life or something. It's not, this is not that. It's not that if I just read it, I don't know what else, I'm, I don't know what to do with it, but I'll read it and I'll get a blessing. That's what it says. It'll come into my account somehow. No those who read it and hear it and step into the reality of it, the blessing is the truth of this book. What this book is intended to portray, display, unveil, and give the church hope in the midst of very difficult times. This was one of the harshest persecutions that the church had yet endured, and the, and the gloves are off and the pressure for them to conform to the paganism around them. And so all through church history, the church has continued to be blessed by a reminder of the transcendent reality that Jesus himself is the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you just want to break into song, don't you? So many songs are are inspired by this book. But we need to move along. We're going we're gonna to be faced that all the way through this series. Well, Churchill said there was a key to understanding Russia and what they might be doing. Well, here we come to the first key, I think, of the book. It's a focus on who God is and a reminder of his purpose. There's a thesis statement for the book overall in these next couple of verses. So let me read them from verse 4. John to the seven churches. This is for the church. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a statement, actually, of God the Father, not Jesus. It kind of sounds like Jesus. Jesus is coming, and Jesus was, and Jesus is presently, but this is a statement of the eternality of God. And now we add to that, and from the seven spirits, or, according to Isaiah 11, verse 2, the sevenfold spirits. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament references, and I'm going to mention some of them just in passing. But what I'll do, week by week, is I'll give you some key references in the notes in the bulletin take those and go back over and look at some of those cross-references and relating to these points, and that'll bring out some of the key parts for you. So if you miss a reference, you say, Bob, slow down. Well, There's so much to do in so little time. But I wanted to give you some of those references along the way. So Isaiah 11:2 2 speaks of the sevenfold spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of strategy and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of reverence. So the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness in his incarnation, the firstborn of the dead, his resurrection, and the ruler of the kings of the earth when he comes again, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God. A kingdom and priests to his God. That was the calling given to Israel. God's redeemed people out of Egypt. And John now takes the same image. He says, church, this is given to us. That we are his kingdom and we are priests to our God. That we represent God to the people around us. We represent the people around us to the throne of God in our prayers for them and our intercessory prayer on their behalf. There's little that gets closer to the heart of God himself and Jesus his son as when you pray for Somebody who needs him or needs his help, needs his grace in time of need. And you, like Jesus who intercedes for us, you come before, as a priest of Jesus, you come before the throne of grace on behalf of somebody else. We are a kingdom of priests and Behold, here's the thesis statement, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. That behold is John saying, look, look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. Who are those who pierced him? It's not the Romans. That's a, rever- that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. When Israel will look on him whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him, Zechariah says, as one mourns an only son. It's hard to get clearer than that, especially when we, with what we now know of Jesus and his death as the only begotten son of God, we look back now and we read Zechariah 12, written hundreds of years earlier. And there it is, clear as could be. And John brings that forward. He is coming with the clouds, the clouds of Daniel chapter 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. All the world will be accountable to God. As Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the Triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. He is coming. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And he is not merely the God of the past who acted in the past and the God in the future who will act in the future. Meanwhile, in the midst of now, we are on our own. No, he was and is and is to come. We're going to see more of that in just a little bit. But let's move on. Behold your God. See him as he is. This is who your God is. Father, Son, and Spirit together, not only in our redemption, not only in the bringing of us to himself, but sovereignly attending to the redemption of planet Earth and the restoration of all things, of bringing us out of that storm and bleak and broken night into his glorious day. Look, he comes. Behold your God, seated on a throne and worthy to be praised. He is the Almighty. He is the overarching one. He is the one in charge of everything. He created it. He he redeemed it. He will restore it according to his purposes. And so John introduces his his letter I, John, your brother, verse 9, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That could be Sunday. That could be that the Spirit brought him to the end of time, the culmination of prophecy, the day of the Lord. Either one have their, have their strengths. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Right? What you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven churches in a circuit, and we'll talk more about them in the next two weeks as we look at chapter two and then chapter three, the letters to these particular churches. But John shares the experiences that they are having. Each city is facing a different type of trouble, but they're all experiencing various forms of trouble. And John, the great John, the last of the 12 disciples, John simply considers himself your brother in Jesus, a partner with you, a participant with you in the present tribulation and the coming kingdom. You see what he does there? In the current realities and in the glorious future. And in the patient endurance that brings us from one to the other. He's with them in this. And note that the Lord's first concern here is not the details of the prophecy. And all the end time stuff. And who's going to invade who? And who is the Antichrist? And what's his name? And how do we figure all that out? And and what exact day? When on the calendar is he coming? Going to be revealed The Lord's first concern is not the details of the prophecy, but the care of His churches. Write this down and be sure the churches get it. Our Lord, we know our Lord loves us. We know He died for us. We know that He wants us to have eternal life with Him. We know that He's expressed His desire for us when He says, So that where I am, there you may be also. But do you know your Lord wants to strengthen your hope? Do you know that he's concerned about what grabs hold of your your heart and what can cloud your mind in the midst of the present troubles and difficulties? That he's considered that. He knows the troubles you're having. He knows the difficulties of life. He knows what it is to be a refugee. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He knows the cover of that bulletin. He knows. The triune God knows the grief of the first morning. The father knows what it is to stand beside the grave of his son. He knows. And yet, his desire for you is in the midst of that, that you know his certain hope. If you jump to the book of Job, it could be compared to Job 1 and 2 are so important to understand the rest of it. Without Job 1 and 2, you'd be lost. You would agree with Job's comforters, though poor comforters they are. Yes, God is a God of justice, and he's fair, and he's right, and so Job must have done something wrong. But in the first two chapters, we see what's really going on. And God here wants you to see how it's really going to end. He wants you to know that. He wants you to have that hope. Even if it's as simple as whatever's going on now, Jesus wins. He is coming. His concern is for us. And so John hears this voice Write down, send it to the churches. He turned to see the voice that was speaking. Isn't it interesting, somebody made the comment how sometimes God sneaks up behind you. Sometimes he's not where you thought he was going to be. Sometimes he doesn't address you from where you thought you would hear from him. Sometimes he's that voice behind you. And sometimes you have to turn around to see him. And so I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And in turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He doesn't see the voice. He sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now there's that Daniel 7.13 imagery again. Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. There's a royal priesthood here. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, the Ancient of Days. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty Father, Everlasting God." and Prince of Peace. Almighty God, everlasting Father, eternal Father. And here you see some of that. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Maybe those were the boots he wore in that furnace in Daniel chapter 3, when he walked with them as he walks with you. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This looks like one of Ezekiel's visions, or perhaps Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And the, and the glory of his train filled the temple. The intentional use of the prophetic symbols, as we see here, he could have just described in regular terms, rather than pulling up all these prophetic references, what he saw, what Jesus looked like. But it's bigger than that. And these symbols throughout are going to keep us from interpreting it merely in John's day. There are some who read Revelation as a done, as a done book, as a, as a story already fulfilled, as things related to the first century only. There are many who interpret it that way. But we take a future, that these things will occur as they're described, and it hasn't happened yet. And so it must yet be future. The appearance of the Lord in his glory borrows from Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6. The sound of his voice, the, the, uh, the sword of his word. Well, we heard about that in Ephesians 6, right? Spiritual warfare. Um, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But those images come from Ezekiel 43, when the glory of the Lord, which had departed from Jerusalem, had departed from the temple because of the sin of the nation, that God could not continue with them any longer, and he leaves. And in Ezekiel 43, which Ezekiel 40 and forward refer to the coming kingdom, and here you see the Lord returned in glory to his temple to dwell again in the midst of his people. The lampstand and the stars are interpreted for us as the churches and their messengers. Some translations read angels, but the word angel means messenger. And here it seems to refer not to the angels who are giving the revelation to John, but these are the messengers of each of the seven churches. Those who will read aloud this book to the church, they will bring God's message to the church. And so you have the pastors or elders of these seven churches, and you have the churches themselves the churches are golden lampstands they are precious they are valuable and did you notice that the son of man walks among the seven lampstands he's going to repeat that in one of the letters he is here he is near he is in our midst not only is in incarnation but in his glory in his sovereignty our lord jesus is with us he is not remote he is not far away. Though he is transcendent, he is imminent. He is near. He is with us. In fact, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is called in Romans 8 the Spirit of Christ. That the church, the local church, is described by Paul as the together the temple of the living God. That he is in the midst of his church and he holds those messengers which I think are then representative as as all the individuals. He holds them in his hand. You know what that reminds me of? First of all, the lampstands. Well, there's an image out of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. Those... Those who are righteous, let me, let me turn to it so I don't misquote it. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, speaking of the resurrection, in verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, those who are witnesses of God's righteousness to others, are like the stars forever and ever. Paul picked up on that idea. He said that Christians um, are shine as lights in the midst of darkness. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's what's being described here, the golden lampstands, which are his church, and that he is in the midst of, and he holds us in his hand. Did you catch that? He holds us in his hand. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. All authority has been given to me, he said in Matthew 28, on heaven and on earth. Are you overwhelmed by his power, his authority, his holiness? Would you fall as one dead before him if we saw him as... That seems to be the pattern in the Bible. When somebody sees God as he really is, in all of his glory, it is overwhelming. And John himself, the aged one, John falls down. And Jesus puts his hand upon him. Don't be afraid. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Here's the outline of the book the things that you have seen, what God wants his church to know. There are three things here. First of all, tell them about my glory. We know Jesus in the Gospels as the humble servant who came and allowed himself to be rejected by men, who had no place to lie his head, who came to to serve rather than to be served, and it's, easily, it's easy to see Jesus as a friend of sinners who came into our weak humanity and knows what it's like, but to see him in a robe and sandals merely. Do you see him the way John sees him here? As the Lord of glory? As the King of kings and Lord of lords? The one that Domitian couldn't hold a candle to? Right, John? For the churches, let them see him as he is. Write it down. Write down those things that are, those things that are presently within the churches. Those are the letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to talk about those. And then those things that are to take place after this. Chapter 4 through the rest of the book. It's an unbalanced outline, but there it is. Chapter 1 is very important. To see him as he is. This is, the, this is, I think, the ultimate key to the book. The God who came near is near, is in our midst, is coming again. He lives, the, he, the one who lives is the one who died for us, the one who rescued us from death and hell. He is the first and the last. Before him there was no God for him, neither will there be after him. He owns time and eternity. That means he knows your days and your weeks and your months and this year. He knows the troubles of it, and he is sovereign over it. He is in our midst. He walks among us. The word of God does not bring him nearer. That's an interesting statement. We think, well, I spend time in the Bible because that brings Jesus nearer to me. No, it doesn't. He is near to you. Opening his book reminds us of the reality. It opens the curtain so that we can see that he is near and all that he has given to us, all that he has done for us, all that he is presently today for us and his glorious future. He is near and he holds us in his hand. I'm reminded of John chapter 10 where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, unending life, and they will never perish. And no one is able to take them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me, he said, is greater than all, and no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand. And there you are. In his hand, in the Father's hand, and there's nowhere safer you and I could be. Are you in his hand? Have you heard his voice saying, The one who believes in me will have everlasting life? Have you heard his voice? Have you believed God concerning the Son? who died in your place as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Have you believed on Him so that you are secure in His hand, in His grasp? You can be. We're going to sing in just a moment the first two verses before we come to this table. We're going to sing the first two verses of a song I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus died and bled for me. And the promises, the blessing of the hope of this book is for those who know that, who believe that. And I want that. I want that for all of us. We're going to spend time in this book because I want this hope for all of us in the midst of difficult times that I expect will get in some ways harder. In the midst of difficult times, I want you to have this hope set before you, clearer than it was before we started. But this hope is for those whom he holds in his hands, who have believed God concerning his Son, who loved you and gave himself for you, who redeemed us from our sins by his own blood. Have you believed him for that? Let's pray. Father, we do pray specifically for that. Lord, for those who would be redeemed by the blood of Jesus and his death for us. Father, for the comfort and the assurance of being held in his hand. Lord, I would pray that this morning there are some here who have not before said to you that, God, I believe you concerning your son Jesus whom you gave to die in my place for my guilt, that I could have eternal life from him. Lord, that this would be the day of their salvation. This would be the day of the beginning of their eternal life. And that the hope that is the blessing of this book would be their hope in the midst of today's difficulties. We pray that, Father. Father.